Hey, Rockheads. Before we get started today, I want to let you know about an opportunity to get face-to-face with some of your favorite .NET rock stars at Dev Intersection, happening this October from the 25th through the 28th at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. One all-day workshop in particular is called Making the Jump to ES6 in TypeScript, with John Papa and Dan Walleen. That happens all day Monday. Now, this is a hands-on workshop, so you bring your own laptop. You'll learn how to convert ES6 and TypeScript to ES5 using tools like Gulp and TSC so that it can run in any browser. You'll learn about modules, classes, maps and sets, destructors, types, interfaces, generics, and many more language features. And if you register for a workshop package before August 3rd, you'll get your choice of a Microsoft Band 2, a Surface 3, or an Xbox One. Plus, you'll save nearly a grand. Hey, get it? A grand. So register now. Check it out at devintersection.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1327, with guests Jamie Dixon and Evelina Gabasova. Recorded Thursday, June 9th, 2016. Hey, 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 it's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're still in Oslo, Norway. We like it here. We love it. We can't stop. Yeah. There's 12 shows we're doing here. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And this will be one of the last published, for better or worse, but yep. not one of the last recorded. Right. So uh, after this, maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple more, maybe two more, yeah. one more. But all right. So you're, we're almost done. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Uh, I'm still uh, sick. Hopefully, I'm better now. You sound better, I think. But you're, uh, you're not you're better not, than yesterday. Yes, you're improving. Really? Wow! Everybody keeps telling me that, but I'm not getting any better. Okay. I don't know. All right. Well, let's roll the music because I got something apropos. Oh, nice for today's show. All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, I went looking for something that had to do with statistics that probably wasn't going to be mentioned in the show. Okay. And so I figure that if you're listening to the show, you, you probably know something about statistics and maybe you have kids that might be interested in learning about statistics. Interesting. Or friends, or maybe just you. Maybe you're just on a quest to learn more. Yeah. So I found this blog post, uh, and this is show number... 1327. So if you go to 1327.pwop.me, the blog post is Using Games to Teach Statistics. Interesting. It's from Carly Berry, uh, May 14th, 2013. And uh, you can use the game Tangrams. You know what Tangrams I are? I do not. So Tangrams are these fundamental shapes that together make a square, and then you get a card with a silhouette and you're supposed to make the shape in that silhouette using the fundamentals. So triangles and a, a square parallelogram. Oh, that's cool. That kind of thing. Yeah, you can see it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a Tangrams web-based puzzle game that requires a player to solve a puzzle by covering an image with a set of shapes by flipping, rotating, and moving the shapes, right? So prior to starting the game, the class decides upon one or more research questions they want to investigate as a group. For example, students may decide to test whether the game completion times differ based on the type of music that is played in the background. Hmm, music in the background. Who would do Who that? Who would do that? Nobody would know. do that. And then they translate the research question into testable hypotheses. Students design the experiment by determining appropriate game settings and conditions for collecting the data. 
After the student researchers design the experiment, they become subjects in the study by playing the game. The Tangrams website collects the player's information and records their completion times, and the data is available for immediate use through the website. The students return to their role of researcher to analyze the data they collected. Next, using statistical software like Minitab, students calculate basic summary statistics and plot histograms of the Tangrams completion times. They discuss and make decisions about data cleaning, such as removing outliers, and then check assumptions, conduct appropriate statistical significance tests, and state their conclusions. Uh, and so the, the whole idea is that it's, you know, statistics can be fun. That's cool, man. I and really like that. use your brain at the same time. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Because, you know, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Why well, and, and, and you talk about how, mu how much the average adult these days is exposed to statistics without understanding the meaning of them, right? right? Exactly. So I think it's a, a valid thing to try and put a bit of grounding for our kids into it. Yeah. So this is at the Minitab blog. Love it. And uh, check it out. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1250, the one we did with Barbara Fuisinka. Yeah. Who uh, was talking about R. And this is... Uh, back in NDC London. Here we are at NDC Oslo. Back mm. in NDC London, we talked to Barbara. And that, that was a fun show. You know, I had, had a good conversation there. And here's a comment from Will who said, thought I'd chime in as I started as a C-sharp developer that has since moved to a Python shop <laughs> that does a lot of data analysis. I looked at R for a little bit and definitely remember the feeling of confusion. Hmm. <laughs> The learning curve for moving to Python is a lot lower for someone with C-sharp or Java experiences. Python also has a very extensive data science ecosystem. The Python package Pandas implements data frames in Python and lets you do all the same data munging operations, like dropping or interpolating missing data, as well as slicing, filtering, and joining data. One advantage of Python over R is that Python is also great for general purpose programming and scripting, so we can use the same language for doing data analysis as we use for creating web services and other applications. I don't know that's an advantage hmm. you know yeah python is much more a general purpose language but i kind of like the focus that r has it so. is an observation yeah however, the yeah. same way that you don't build websites in sql mm. uh, another thing i'd like to share is jupiter notebook and he included the link which is jupiter j-u-p-y-t-e-r.org one of my favorite open source projects. It is an extremely powerful browser-based programming environment that supports different language backends, including Python, R, F-sharp, and C-sharp, as well as inline graphing, markdown, and more. I've found it extremely useful for playing around with new libraries and APIs, where extremely fast feedback is invaluable, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the project. I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on the sure, project. Sure, yeah, especially so, the guests. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. Certainly, Python has a big role to play in mm -hmm. the statistical analysis side of things, and uh, R is another route to that. We're going to talk a little bit more at R today. Yeah. So, Will, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We keep stats on them. Nice. How's that? Uh, now let's uh, introduce our guest. Jamie Dixon has been writing code for as long as he can remember and has been getting paid to do it since 1995. He was using C-sharp and JavaScript almost exclusively until discovering F-sharp. About three years ago, he started working with R and now combines all four languages for the problems at hand. He has a passion for discovering overlooked gems in data sets and merging software engineering techniques to scientific computing. Jamie has a BSCS in computer science and a master's in public health. He's the former chair of his town's information services advisory board and is an outspoken advocate for open data. 
And uh, with us also is Evelina Gabasova. She is a machine learning researcher working in bioinformatics, trying to reverse engineer cancer at University of Cambridge. Outside of academia, she also speaks at developer conferences and user groups about data science, machine learning, and F-sharp. Welcome, Jamie. And welcome back, Evelina. Oh, hello. It's nice to be here again with nice you. Nice to have you with us. First of all, uh, what did you think of the comment? How are you with Python? Well, I use Python sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because if you are doing any data science, you have to use all the languages. <laughs> <laughs> More languages, yeah. better. Huh? It's only about finding the right tool for the job. And then you can use whatever you want. So I use R, Python, F Sharp, sometimes Perl, things mm-hmm. like that. Everything. Right. <laughs> All sorts of write-only languages. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I work in industry. Evelina works in uh, academia, and, and it's, it's the same thing. We use as many tools as possible. And so I like Python. I use it um, in a limited basis, and I use R also. Um, Are there particular cases for why you'd use R versus Python for certain problem spaces? Well, for me, usually I look at libraries that are available there. And mm-hmm. although Python has many data science libraries, there is everything in R. Right. Mm. And also because I work in bioinformatics, there is something called BioPython, but it's not as comprehensive as the tools that are available in R. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so there's a lot of routines and functions already built in R for things that you... You, you might want to do that's a really good reason to use it not yeah, exactly. to write your own necessarily but um, to use what's already done and, yeah. and in industry or, or where I am um, it, it, it's just a, it happens to be in our shop and mm-hmm. it's the language that most people feel comfortable with you can certainly accomplish much of what we would do in either Python or R or F sharp I mean mm-hmm. a regression is a regression aggression I would like to think that we're doing some kind of advanced machine learning and statistical work but majority of it is yak shaving the data and, mm-hmm. and doing some basic um, work. So on that level, we could have used anything, and it's just most people were comfortable using R, and, and they had come from an R background. So, Yeah, the skill you have, I guess, is the most important thing right off the bat. Tie goes to the runner. Yeah. Well, and also, for most work, you're not pressing against the edges of either of these languages, right? Like the, the, the typical us, yeah. analysis is going to be both tools can make it work. And do you ever find, and I think this is what you're getting at here, do you ever find that you're calling one from the other, like calling our routines from C-sharp? Is that even possible? I don't call it from C-sharp. I call it from F-sharp or because from I F-sharp. use the R type provider. Um, so I, when I write managed code, when I do .NET uh, languages, I much prefer using F-sharp over C-sharp. Sure. Um, and so it's very natural when I want to call R directly, I would just use the type provider because it's, it's just an easier, yeah. right? no pain point. Just the do type it. provider, is, uh, as I understand it, is just a way to sort of, you know... Uh, get anything in, as data in F-sharp. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. They're absolutely awesome. Yeah. So and distinct to F-sharp. I think we had Don Stein himself right. saying it's not going to show up at C-sharp. That's right. And, and here's the thing about the F-sharp community is like there, there's a lot of really smart people who mm. like Don Stein, mm-hmm. Thomas Petrek, and all these people. Um, I can't explain why it would show up in F-sharp, not C-sharp. I'm, I'm not at that level. I'm right. just at the, I'm trying to use it. I'm trying to build great products and make a lot of money. So, um, and you, you know, know, for whatever reason, okay, I'll stay on F-sharp and use right. it. But guess what? It's fair because F-sharp is a managed language. C-sharp is a managed language. You can call F-sharp from C-sharp. So yeah. guess what? You yeah. can do it from C-sharp. So oh, yeah, you could pass it through. You yeah. can pass it through. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's not actually all that isolated. Yeah. So how, now that you've gone down the path of digging into languages like R and so forth, yeah. how did, did, 
working in .NET help you understand that or make things more complicated? Do you want me to go first or <laughs> well, <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> you're a .NET developer. That's true. Right? That is so. true. Um, so, so, yeah, did it make it more complicated coming? So let me ask you this. You've had a lot of guests on your show. Mm -hmm. um, what was the inflection point where an ASP.NET developer who was used to Postback had to learn MVC and had to learn a lot of JavaScript? Yeah, I, I remember that. I, I remember the exact show. Mm -hmm. We were talking to Jeffrey Palermo. Right. The oh, yeah. first guy we talked to about MVC. And, uh, and everybody was kind of freaking out. And, and because it was a paradigm shift for, for everyone. And so when they first went from C Sharp to JavaScript, at least that I noticed also, is that there was a lot of, I guess, pain is the right word. Yeah, yep. pain's the right word. Yeah. Relearning. Relearning. Unlearning. Yeah. And, and, and so... Um, when you move to R, that that's actually was my talk yesterday, there's a lot of unlearning also. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have the comfort of curly braces and semicolons. And so maybe that's actually good that there's no syntactic similarity. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that is good. <laughs> and, and I was trying to convince the people in the audience, they were all pretty much .NET developers. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of interest, by the way. I mean, mm -hmm. the room was packed. Mm -hmm. That if you find yourself writing code like you would in C Sharp, particularly imperative code, you're probably using R incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be fighting the language. And so mm -hmm. s stop what you're doing. Just maybe unlearn some of those things and approach it from a different direction. And I think you will, um, you'll be much more successful. And that was my own personal experience, too. Mm -hmm. So if you're comfortable with the code, you're doing it wrong. Well, you're com <laughs> if you're comfortable in C Sharp and you think that that comfort level is going to translate over to R, right. uh, you're in for a world of eye-opening. Uh, it just okay. doesn't work that, that way. That's totally fair. I mean, it's just... I remember, you know, even pre.NET, watching VB developers writing really horrible store procedures in SQL Server. Because yeah. oh, they sure. were doing that same, they were using cursors. They wanted yep. to iterate through rows. Row by row. Yeah. yeah. And that's just like the whole point of SQL was to work in sets, sets right? Exactly. It was really a functional mindset, and it was a different way to think about the problem. Mm -hmm. And when you did it well, it worked well. When you did it poorly, it worked poorly. And I think the, the train, it's a slow-moving train, but I was lucky enough because I wanted to do data science because I'm interested in open data sets and I'm interested in um, just, just, I'm curious about the world around me from, uh, from a statistical point of view. And I was probably a data scientist before the word showed up, um, mm -hmm. just an enthusiast in a lot of ways. But I, I, ran, I ran across this guy named Matthias Brandevender. Uh, has he been on your show? I don't think, I don't think so. so. No, I, should, I think I remember that name. He's awesome. And, he's, and, and he was one of the few .NET people or few Microsoft people I could find who were do, was doing data science at the time. Because mm -hmm. Microsoft is typically underrepresented for data science. Sure. I mean, and, and in fact, Matthias is like, well, if you go to a bar in San Francisco and say you're a Microsoft person, you know, first off, you have a Windows machine, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. like Richard over here. Um, and he said, what you really need to do, particularly coming from your background as a software engineer, architect, is that you need to learn functional constructs. You have to understand these things. And so learn a new language here, Jamie. Learn F-sharp. Mm -hmm. And for about six months, I cursed him. And now I can't thank him enough. Mm -hmm. um, because that made the transition to R so much easier. Mm. So, um, yeah, as a, as a, if you're a C-sharp dev listening right now and you're, you've heard about R and you see all that movement in Redmond and tons of people are learning and talking about R and you see how Microsoft's integrating R into SQL Server 2016 mm -hmm. and how they have Revolution Analytics and R Server available and you want to sort of get up in that. Wow. Um, yeah, you can jump right into R, um, but you can also start thinking functionally and you right. can be very comfortable with link in your C-sharp code yeah. and then perhaps go out to F-sharp and say, well, wait a minute, why do I need these things called classes? Why do I need these all these right. curly braces and why do I need all this stuff around it? So 
Um, it, it's, a, just a, it's a slow moving train, but if you start to stand there with your imperative OO code, that train does sort of leave you behind every day. So. There's two, and there's two pieces there then. There's thinking functionally and then learning this new language of data science. Correct. So you really have a, a double deck stacked against you. If you can knock them out separately, you're probably better off. One thing at a time. Yeah. 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 Get comfortable in F sharp and, and writing good functional code and suddenly R will you'll you'll do fewer evil things in R. It made it a lot easier <laughs> for me personally. There's a, a conversation don't that we ever write for loops in R. <laughs> no, oh my gosh, yes, that's one nice place. If you're listening, don't. No yeah. loops, no cursors. Nothing. So, um, this is a conversation that we have with everyone it seems when we talk about functional languages in F# -sharp in particular is that, you know, um, I write a lot of code that's in websites and processing data and all of this stuff and data classes and all of these things. Is that stuff that I can still do in F-sharp and be comfortable in it? Uh, or should I do things in C-sharp that are, that are more appropriate in C-sharp? In other words, can I use F-sharp for everything? Or can I m mix, mix and match? Well, I think it's actually really good to mix and match them because, for example, UI, writing UI, it's very object-oriented domain. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So that's probably better done in C-sharp because that's much better suited for it. Uh, but write the business logic and all, the, all what's happening underneath in F-sharp mm -hmm. because that's where you want to have like, the clear algorithms that are actually doing something. And that's, that's a great... That is the response that we get all the time, and that is very true. Except for Ted Neward. Ted Neward said, no, write everything in F-sharp. Well, <laughs> and the thing is, I mean, th but they have gone and made it a general purpose language. I don't know that they should have, but they did, right? I mean, you really can do all these things. You're not necessarily going to do them well, but the, uh, you have access to objects in F-sharp. You just shouldn't do that. Actually, I disagree. I, I use objects in F-sharp. Um, again, coming from business, um, my experience is people ask me that similar question, mm. and I say, well, yeah, you stick on the UI. Um, you, you could do everything all the way through, and particularly with Xamarin has such great support for F-Sharp, right. mm -hmm. and the percentage of people using F-Sharp in Xamarin. Um, mm. But so again, it, it's the right tool for the job that you've already mentioned, that we've sort of reiterated, um, is, yeah, I would... When I work on, on projects with developers, it's the C-sharp, you know, you're comfortable with it, you got the templating, you have the tooling and all that, and the domain makes sense. As soon as you get to the code that you can't be wrong with, I immediately duck into F-sharp because F-sharp prevents me from making errors. And, Interesting. And, and, well, and I'm also, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Um, it's f funny when I hang out with the, the functional people, I feel very, I'd say intimidated is one word, but perhaps I just, you know, they might have a beer. I don't want to drink a beer because I can't let my brain, <laughs> you know. <I'm, laughs> they're the smartest guys in the honors class who never look like they studied for an exam, you know. And I was the guy in the average class who worked my butt off just to get through. And, yeah. and, and but, but I love the language and, and it's really helpful. We are hanging with Joe Armstrong and Robert Verding and like guys who've invented important languages yeah. over <laughs> the past 30 years. Like, this is a tough room, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. They're really smart people here. But, but when they tell you and, and then, you, then you see, okay, if I do this in my domain layer and I'm doing it all in a functional style, mm -hmm. holy cow, I'm just preventing myself from making all these mistakes, and it's, it's, it's just so, and, and I look at it positive, like all the applications I've written in industry across different uh, sectors, um, that code doesn't make mistakes, it doesn't sure. have problems, and, and, and so it, it's so convincing. It is interesting to see someone thinking functionally and writing C-sharp, like it is changing the way people write C-sharp. I, I really think um, the the, the, the the president of the F-Sharp uh, Foundation is a guy named Reed Copsey. Mm -hmm. And um, he's a wonderful person. 
uh, he, he was thinking about writing a book, an intro to F-sharp. There's several of them out there, but I said, Reed, what you need to do is write a book called C-sharp to F-sharp and in parentheses and back again. So if you choose to come back, you'll be at a pro better program. You'll be, that's different. What I, you'll be yeah. different, you'll be better, and if not... Um, you can, uh, you can perhaps stay there or perhaps stay there longer than just a summer vacation. Well, there's a number of shows we've done over the past a couple of years, actually. We've been talking about how we stretch the edges of our skills, trying these other languages and so forth, and come back to our core languages yeah. better for it, you know, and write better code in, in C-sharp, for example. But I will not promise you that if you write in R that you will be better C-sharp developer. I think that's fair, <laughs> because it is a very specific area. It's a uh. DSL, and unless it, you have to know statistics while you're learning um, R. Yeah, and which, again, Another thing on top of the challenge of ours, you know, functional data science, big uh, on statistics. Mm. Yeah, you don't, you're about to say big data, and that's not right, not, right? Say big on statistics. <laughs> okay. Not say big data. I'm not, <laughs> not going to worry about that. And well, Lena, you you don't have this foundation in building business software. I mean, you're you come from academia, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I come from academia. So you don't you don't carry the same baggage that Jamie. She's and trying Will to cure cancer, now. man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she's <laughs> like the real deal. Thank goodness, <laughs> right? Because he's <laughs> trying to make money. She's trying to cure cancer. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I, in my life I've written about 100 lines of C-sharp code. Okay, and you regret every one of them. Okay. And they were all for loops. <laughs> no, no, no. They're all linked. No. They're all linked. <laughs> so, I mean, in some ways, I, I mean, I'm just remembering the previous show we did with you and so forth. Like, you, it seems like you've always worked in functional language. You really haven't worked in other ways. Well, I've been doing quite a lot of mathematics, right. and it's so much easier to do something like this in functional language. Of course. Because the mathematics just translates almost directly to right. like, functional code. This is all set theory stuff. It's, it's good. It'll yeah, work. Yeah. 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 Not a big yeah. deal. Build a tensor. You'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to know the mathematics to use functional programming, of course. Yeah. I but, hope not. But you do need to know the statistics, <laughs> and I think it's one of these pieces that... You can go a long way in development without actually learning statistics. But I remember mm. hitting a wall in some projects that I was working on for marketing, actually, hmm. where the, the stats models mattered. And I ended up taking a couple of night classes in stats because you really did have to have a, a foundation in you know, basic linear regressions. Like, just know how to look at a set of data and get truth from it, not lies. Yeah, well, there are all these sayings. I think it was Winston Churchill who said that don't trust any statistics that you didn't fake yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so you really need to know what you are doing if you are dealing with data. And if you are fitting any model, you need to know the statistics to understand the results. Sure. What, are the, what was the one? There are two kinds of statistician, liars and damn dirty liars. What, <laughs> what is that? I can't remember. It's something like that. I don't know. So, so the interesting, uh, I want to change my story a little bit about, you're talking about statistics and how to you know, make the data conform to what you're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that R taught me is how to be, because you can see, keep blowing yourself in the foot, sort of like when I was doing C++ programming uh, with memory. <laughs> That's uh, the C++ motto. <laughs> it's, your, it's your foot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the one thing it did teach me is how to be incredibly deliberate mm. and systematic with my data. Because mm -hmm. the majority of the time in R, you know, if, if I took 100 scripts out of um, GitHub, and mm -hmm. the most popular are, or even Kaggle, let's say. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, in the first five lines, someone's reading a CSV or reading a web service or reading a SQL sure. database, right? get your data in there. And then the remaining, a majority of it is, is shaping and working with the data, visualizing, doing everything. But the thing that I learned, and, and then I never really appreciated coming from industry, is, you know, when you use SQL Server, everything's sort of set up for you. You have your schema, you know, maybe it's null or not, but mm. you just sort of, and, and, and particularly now with Entity Framework, we have our abstractions. We don't even think about the data going through and, and mm -hmm. what, 
But with R, when you get this data down, you really have to make it, select star from customer ID, first name, last name, everything. You really have to make each one of those columns your own. You have to understand the bounds. You have to find mm. the outliers. You have to know what percentage are null, what percentage are NA, because you have NA and a null in R, and you have to know the difference between the two and how you're going to handle it. And so it's really forced me to slow down with the data. Mm. And I think as a business developer, sometimes we're very quick to just push yes. it in and pull it out. You know, I, and I'm spending most of my time with my Angular or JavaScript or whatever I'm doing right. on the, in, in the browser, right. trying to delight my user. But all that stuff going through, even though it seems seamless, that's what's really slowed me down and forced me to think about mm. the, the business application. And then also, okay, what other elements do we need to move from just descriptive to predictive analytics? How can I make my app smart? Yeah. But this pushes you towards reproducible analytics, yeah. which is a very good direction. And people have been struggling with this in academia a lot, actually, because well, there have been uh, examples where they just copied one table from Excel to some program and then they analyzed it but they forgot that they didn't include the header and <laughs> then all their uh, results were shifted by one. Right. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> and the results came out as, exactly as they wanted, so they didn't even investigate. Yeah, and wow. when people went back and tried to uh, reproduce the results, they couldn't because they... Did they, it right. Yeah, 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 they did it right. The mistakes creep in. Yeah. I've, certainly, I've had this happen to me in industry as well. Early on in my development career, writing reports and... Yeah. and and getting totals wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, you you only get a one chance to sort of have people trust your system. Right. And messing up month-end sales totals in front <laughs> of the sales director, not good. Not he good. knows what the sales totals for each month were. So as soon as he questions those numbers, he's never going to stop questioning the numbers. He'll right. never believe your numbers again. Right. right? You, you lose that trust. Can we talk about what a regression is? For oh. You know, let's give some, some uh, nutritional value to those who don't <laughs> know what we're talking about here. Okay, so regression is one type of statistical analysis or even machine learning. And there are several types. One of them is classification, where given inputs, you try to predict discrete labels. I know given uh, like some inputs, for example, on your sales, you can predict if this customer will buy this product or not. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. there is regression. And then given inputs, you are trying to predict a value. So given the same data, you might predict uh, how much the customer will, is willing to spend. Right. And that's like a floating point value, for example. So that's regression. Why is it called a regression? Is it the way that the, the algorithm works on the data? I don't know where the term actually comes from. It's mm. just the name for this type of algorithm. Yeah. Right. Okay. And it's, you're yeah. trying to fit to yeah. a curve. I mean, I've done this a lot in e-commerce where we found the number of pages you looked at correlated very neatly to how much you bought. You know, and again, I was a performance guy, so it's like, if we make those pages faster, they stick around longer, they're more likely to look at more pages, they will buy more. And so... And they fit regression we, They model. fit this regression <laughs> curve very neatly, so it's, it's not a straight line. It's not for each page this many dollars. It's like the longer they're on, that number starts to go up even more, like we're strongly incented but it, to keep them on the side. But it is a correlation. In other words, there could be other factors Absolutely. that are causing this relationship that yeah and, and correlation is doesn't not causation. Do, yeah, right. but not i know this too non-correlation is non-causation yeah. right you can say that yeah you're so, yeah, sure if they if the numbers don't correlate at all they probably have no causation right. but, but just because they do correlate doesn't mean there's causation. exactly yes. 
because there might be some other factor that influences both both of these things mm -hmm. and makes them correlated. Who is in public health? You? I was. Yeah, so you see this in studies all the time, right? You see correlations and people jump to conclusions that this causes that. Uh, actually, my degree was in public health. Mm. Um, and um, I started out actually doing marketing uh, for mm. health plans in California before I moved on. Um, and it's actually the, the most famous example I know about correlation causation is that um, the, the number of ice cream sales at the beach correlate with the number of shark attacks. So if we stopped selling ice cream, obviously. There'd be no, no shark attacks, right? Yeah. And of course, the third factor that Evelina already mentioned was as it gets warmer, more people are on the beach to be yeah. in the water to be attacked by yeah, sharks exactly. and by ice cream. So, um, but yeah, so in public health, um, I was doing healthcare management type things. Um, we were on the same building as the epidemiologists. And if I had to go back in life, I'd probably be in epidemiology because they do so many fun, yeah, interesting right. things. <laughs> you know, it's really unfortunate. And people die. Well, <laughs> yeah, but the studies of it, and you think about, okay, humans have, you know, permit me to be a little bit long view, but human, you know, humans, we've gone from 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old in life expectancy. Sure. What's the number one reason? Mm. And, and you can make a very convincing no argument. No more shark attacks. No more shark attacks. That's why. But yeah. it, for public health, right? And the, <laughs> yep. and the basic epidemiological studies that say, hey, guess what? But, you know, if you, you manage your garbage, if you have clean water, if you mm -hmm. do these things. Got let out of gasoline. Like, yeah. these, uh, yeah. it gets more subtle, but it's the reality is civilization is doing statistical analysis to find what's impacting health, removing those factors, and extending life. And, the, and hoping that we did the statistical analysis right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> did you shift by one? Did now everybody right? dies. This is an Excel spreadsheet. This is uh, the, the one that I heard was uh, every, at every fire, house fire, there's firemen. <laughs> so, oh, so we, we should remove the, the firemen, yeah. and then we won't have fires. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. It's time for a little regression quiz. Mm -hmm. oh. How many 20-year-olds does it take to make a teenager properly wash a toddler's binky? How many? Goo goo gaga. <laughs> See what I did there? Teenager, toddler, baby. Never mind. All right. Uh, okay. okay. I just, uh. No, it's not funny. All right. <laughs> All right. I'm laughing with I'll, you. I'll, I'll take my But digs. the failure of your joke is funny. Okay. The failure of the joke is funny. <laughs> okay, good. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, do you know Swift, Objective-C, and Java? Can you use them in tools like Xcode and Android Studio? If so, awesome. For everyone else, there's NativeScript a cross-platform framework for building native iOS and Android apps using skills you already have, JavaScript or TypeScript, CSS, and a XAML-like XML markup. Build the mobile apps you've always wanted to build. Use the NativeScript CLI for free, or use NativeScript inside of Visual Studio with a Telerik platform subscription, which enables you to build iOS apps without the glowing Apple. Get started for free at nativescript.org. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Doug Riley. Oh, congratulations, Doug. Golf yeah. clap for you, sir. Absolutely. Those darn clappers. I don't even need the clappers. No, we no, four, everybody's four clapping. Here. There you go. And uh, Doug just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of that fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And of course, now it's your 
your turn, Jamie. Let's start with you. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? So technology, I'm going to define fairly broadly. Sure, mm -hmm. that's okay. Um, so my youngest child, um, he's finishing up eighth grade, uh, races stock cars because I'm from North Carolina. Mm. Um, and if you have a .NET Rock sticker, we'll throw it on the side. So on the speedway, awesome. on, nice. you can see a stock car. It's, it's 5 eighths size. And people say, isn't that expensive? And I say, no, it's actually cheaper than travel soccer. Mm. Yes. Um, because at the end of the race, I still have my car. And <laughs> if you went to a tournament, you have perhaps a trophy. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so what we would, if we had an extra $5,000 just sort of waiting, laying around, waiting for technology, um, we would probably stuff every IoT sensor in the world into that car, nice. wow. read it, and then throw a drone above it. And, then, right. and then we could start tracking um, lines. And, and, and the equipment that's already been built, but one, you can't do it yourself, right? right? And you can't hack into it, which is you know, half the fun. And the other thing is that, um, you know, just most of the joy for me is I don't care how he does in the race. He's, in fact, not very good. Um, but <laughs> the next day when we work on the car together in the garage, um, the, I, I know I don't have my son for much longer until, you know, they he's grow up. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it, well, he's the youngest, so I've already seen that with the other two. Sure, yeah, um, you know where So the goes. youngest, you hold on a little bit tighter, <laughs> sure. please. So for me, that's the enjoyment. And he's a 5'8 size car? They're 5A size. It's called Bandolero class. It's, okay. So wow. there's, it's called INEX Racing, I-N-E-X. Yeah. Hmm. Um, they're uh, throughout the world. It spins for inexpensive racing. And it's designed for folks like me who's or sons or so daughters. So you can still do it in your garage. Yeah. You can What's still the power plant? Um, so the Bandolero class yeah. is just a 30 um, horsepower motor. Right. And we put a restrictor plate on it on his home track because it's a, it's a quarter mile bull ring that's pretty tight concrete walls right um and uh so if he's throwing out 15 horsepower but he's still getting to 60 miles an hour right it just yeah. takes a while to spin on up. right sure and, 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 and he's got to turn efficiently it's a really fast it's all about the line yeah and it's but and he's not maybe he's smarter than the, he's a little bit older than the other kids who are sort of starting but i'm the only dad who's the it person everyone else is like owns mm. their garage um but it, it's a great um it's a great entry because they seal all the, they seal the engine they inspect everything mm. so it, it's sort of an equalizer it's designed for people who don't want to spend a lot of money racing right. to wow. do it that's really cool um, oh it's phenomenal and then he wants to go to the next class up and it's the same thing we'll sell the car we'll get a new one and it's still less than travel soccer and wow. um <laughs> you like that and you can race as long as and you can race stock cars yeah and he's, and he's racing no kidding and you get to work on the car I mean, he, you he, have, you he did his first clutch fantastic and you know and and he's getting his hands dirty and, and yeah. for me as a, a nerd dad that's that's great. And not for. to nerd out on, on race cars, which I could easily do, but isn't the suspension set up like half the battle? Well, but we only go one track. Right. So once we set it... So you're, you're set on a left-optimized track, I it, presume. It, it, exactly. And, and, and then he has to do the calculations. Are you actually wedging? Like, how, how shifted is the suspension? We don't wedge. You don't have what to in our class. What are you guys talking about? Uh, sorry. <laughs> I have no idea either. But, but go ahead and check out INEX Racing. I will, yeah, And absolutely. if you come to Raleigh, we'd love to have you in the pits. You can, uh, we'll, we'll just lose the rest of the show if I go there. Sorry. Oh, okay. sorry. I'm not going to do it. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk at lunch. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Evelina? What would you spend uh, well, 5000 I would probably buy one of these fancy GPUs optimized for deep learning. <laughs> oh, she would. Of course she would. So I can play with it a bit more properly at home. Uh, things so like is that. It, is it the CUDA that you that, that's the hotness these days? NVIDIA's CUDA? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, CUDA is actually the C library to call the GPU. Right. Yeah, and there's a good Python library for CUDA yeah, as well, yeah. as, I as I recall. I worked with a group of guys using CUDAs to do uh, planet discovery, a set of astronomers. Wow. And that, everything was yeah. done in Python. It's a statistical analysis problem, right? You're looking for repeating light variations in stars. 
as yeah. an implication yes. of the existence yes. of a planet. It's a stats problem. Yes, it actually, is. Actually, <laughs> you know, repeated observations with, C, with, with these CCD plates and just and then adding up all the math and going, it varies at this rate. We know how big the planet is, how fast it's turning, like all the details just from that. Hmm. And that's really cool. And there's a math, just a, the cellular math problem, right? Breaking all that out, cranking on these. And we were racking them. Like, I'm a hardware guy, right? So they <laughs> liked me around because I'm like, I know how to cool yeah. this. How many can we put in? Here's a PCI bus extender so we can actually put more per machine. And they're like, oh, my God, we can do all these things. So <laughs> I'm just, how much compute can you get per square foot for those kinds of problems? I think David Crook down in um, Microsoft Research in uh, Miami is actually building the F-sharp uh, on top of that, too. So. Oh, F-sharp nice. for CUDA. Cool. For CUDA. Yeah. I, I think so. I, I, I sometimes By the way, you can vacuum up five oh, grand in like two boards. Yeah. Well, right? <laughs> yeah. But they there will is take a your money. company in Switzerland doing like, optimized computations from F-sharp that are directly like, shifted towards CUDA. Oh, really? You, yeah, you can write sorry, anything Dave. for GPUs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> when you... Uh, because with, when you are programming anything with GPUs, you actually have to know where your data are. Uh, mm. Because like, if you have your data on your CPU and then transfer it into GPU, that's incredibly slow. Yeah. So you need to keep them in the, C in the GPU uh, until the computations that you want to do are finished, and then you can transfer the data out ah. again. So it's actually quite hard to think about it and program it because you need to be aware of the hardware underneath. Mm. Yeah, it's a paging problem. Yeah. What makes our, or, or any of the statistical analysis slow? Is it the amount of data or the complexity of the analysis? Like, why are we needing GPUs? What's hard here? Well, I think these are two different things. Mm -hmm. uh, GPUs, I don't think people use them a lot with R. No. Because they are like, specifically optimized for doing fast like matrix operations. Right. So people use it mainly nowadays for deep learning. Okay. Because that's just computing gradients very quickly and GPUs are great for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But with R, you generally don't care that much about speed. You care about the data analytics. Right. Mm -hmm. You just try to fit um, relatively small models to medium-sized data sets and get results. That maybe if you find some patterns, then you can lift it over to some other language and implement it more efficiently. So when you're building a model, it's not about, you want a relevant sample size, but you don't want the whole set because you do want to have something to test against. Yeah, that's another well, point. So it's a, really a question of how big is a set that's relevant, that's going to give you a good enough set of gradients that you can actually compare them against a longer data set. Yeah, for example, yeah. Do you, it, do you have any numbers around that? Like, what's, what's, what's the right math? There? Well, <laughs> that's actually a very complex question. Mm -hmm. Because if you are a statistician uh, and someone comes to you and says, well, I have these data and can you tell me if, for example, the effect is significant? Right. Then you tell them, so how large of an effect do you expect? And they tell you, oh, I'm expecting like 1% difference in the outcome. Right. And then you tell them, well, based on these things, you need so many samples. So if there is the effect, we will observe it. Right. So given the effect size, you can actually compute how many data points you need to do that. I'm reading the total distraction, but still stats related, is uh, some of the new data coming out of the Large Hadron Collider, which they're writing papers like crazy because they found, they think they may have found a new object, although the best experiments that I've seen so far, 1.6 sigma, which is really not good data. Like we're, and there's like 300 papers being proposed on the, it's 1.6 sigma, guys. Like it's not that good of data. Why are mm -hmm. you going nuts? <laughs> Except that it could be. Because it is data. Well, and <laughs> and you yeah, don't exactly. have anything more. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it could be a particle that doesn't fit in the standard model, which is a huge deal if you're a physicist. Like, holy man, right? It's like 
you've, you've changed everything. So, but so, I, I only bring that all that up to talk about statistical relevance. That, that how are we making sure that we're teaching people how to evaluate information and say this is actually relevant. Like the, clearly the physicists have a set of rules, they use a sigma model, and it's like five sigmas is absolute certainty, pretty much, you know, and somewhere below that. But you know, once you get down to 1.6, they're going, no. Yeah, Did and statisticians have p-values. P-value yeah. versus sigma, <laughs> yeah. How do you describe that to someone who's, who's learning statistics? Describe it to me, because I have no idea what the hell you guys are talking about. <laughs> oh, What's uh, a p-value? <laughs> What's a sigma? <laughs> I'm a program. I'm a C-sharp programmer, man. Oh, well, every time you go read some article in newspapers that say, oh, we found association between, I don't know, uh, eating uh, cereal for breakfast and having longer lifespan. Oh, right. That's yeah. just because people observed some group of people that were doing these things. Yeah. And then they found that they fit it linear regression yeah, or something like that. Yeah. And then put it into R or something and it gave them low p-value. And that okay. means it's probably important. And p-value, it's, well, it's a bit complex to understand it from a statistical point of view, but it, uh, technically it's the probability of observing data that we observed, given that the null hypothesis is true. Okay. Well, and that's too statistical. So it's a weight, so really, technically, right? it's no. something like probability that we observe the data uh, and our hypothesis that we are trying to test is not true. Okay. okay, not true. Yeah, not so it's true. An, so it's a, a negative it weight? Yeah, it doesn't prove that the, your hypothesis is true, but it says that the data are... Unla how unlikely are the data if your hypothesis is not true? Right. Okay. I mean, that's the reality. <laughs> this is a scientific method. You never prove a hypothesis. You yeah. only consistently show that you can't disprove it. Yeah, so in statistics, you mm. always com compare two hypotheses. Right. And... Uh, one is called the null hypothesis, which is the one that you are trying to disprove, basically, right. by your data. Mm. Yeah, the word choice is like, he's a great guy, I can't prove it, but I know he's perhaps not a terrible person. Right. <laughs> and so the semantics is... Or down uh -huh. south, we would just say, bless their heart. Bless <laughs> their heart. I love that. <laughs> so I hope we didn't confuse everyone no, I, I, I with p-values. There's another language called S, isn't there? Well, that's what R came from. Right. So what is, what's the difference and what do, where, what's that history like? Well, to be <laughs> honest, I have never seen S originally, but R was the open version of S. Oh, okay. And when R came along, suddenly almost everyone stopped using S. And I don't know if it's used anywhere. Have uh, you met anyone using S? I have not met anyone <laughs> using S, but, I, but S was a derivation. I, it, I know scheme Wait, is in there. let me see. T? Was that a derivation of T? Because we seem to be going backwards here. Going down the letters. Well, that's all right. When Microsoft came out with U-SQL, we were like, is that the next letter after T-SQL? U-SQL? I said, well, it should be Y-SQL. Like, why did they do this? But that got me in trouble with the SQL Server folks. People run out of letters. We are going C and et cetera and R. But the origins of S, I believe it was started in Bell Labs, was Scheme. Functional language and, and one mainframe. I, I want. They don't really look similar. Uh, not, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, hmm. so apparently that's where the S maybe okay. came from. Yeah, I thought S stands for statistics. Yeah, I'm no, gonna guess I, that. Uh, well, not right. simple. Well, in other Numbers. words, you know, it's history. Yeah. Okay. I still don't know that we've actually explained to .NET developers what they're going to have to take to get into R. 
mean, okay. I mean, there is something we need to download. I mean, it does come from Microsoft these days. It, well, um, so a couple things. So if you're a .NET developer, um, I think in 2016, I've been saying this for a couple years, mm -hmm. um, so maybe if I keep saying it eventually, history will bear uh, me out. But I do think, um, you talk to a lot of .NET developers, they think themselves as a full stack developer. Right. Right, and when you think stack, you think pancakes and syrup and get mm -hmm. hungry. Mm -hmm. But in the full stack, it, you know, you sort of think of like a, a cylinder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know you have the UI, the middle layer, and data layer, and you, and you and you and you can move up and down, right? So I know my T SQL, I know my C sharp, I know my JavaScript, my yep. HTML, my CSS. But in my mind, it's actually more of an hourglass or a body bell, uh, what a dumbbell, dumbbell. Thank you, lifted on the side because your UI is really really hard. I, I'm not a UI. It. There's tons. I mean, and, mm. and it's not like it's getting easier. I mean, look at Build. They're now doing a bot framework. Right. So yeah. can well, you build a non-visual? I mean, does yeah. your CSS matter? No. Our clients have exploded. There's no two ways about it. Mm. And even if you're trying to unify under the Microsoft, like I can do Xamarin so I can target iOS and um, yeah. Android, all the folks I talk to about do this stuff on a daily basis, it gets you most of the way there, mm. but you still need to know the last piece, and it's always the hardest piece. Yeah. That and, last 20% is a big deal. And that visual component that might transcend even your language. I mean, you have to know HTML, you have to know accessibility, you mm. have to know... And, and it's not going to get easier with bots and, and non-visual UIs. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing's happening on the server side, too. Um, so, you know, you, you used to know relational databases. Well, does your organization use, quote, big data? Do you know anything about Hadoop? Do you know anything about Spark? Do you know anything about, instead of descriptive to predictive analytics, and not just, hey, I have a tool that can sort of maybe under the hood throw me a regression, but understand really what's going on with my data? Sure. And, and can I explore it? And can I visualize it? Can I make it my own? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that full stack developer really perhaps needs to pivot to the UI and be very good at the UI or perhaps pivot for the data um, as a skill set. So, and if you're going to pivot to the data, which I think is a very interesting area, it's an area that I'm more interested in than the UI side as a .NET developer, um, holy cow, there's a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know and there's things I don't know I don't know about. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're going to pivot to the server, yeah, you have to have, be able to have a conversation and talk to Python people. Right. You have to have a conversation and be able to talk to our people. And um, you really should understand functional constructs and what do you know? F-sharp's right there in the IDE. Go mm -hmm. ahead and add it to your app. It's not going to kill you. And yeah. you might actually find out yourself being much more productive, et cetera. So step one you have to learn some statistics. If yep. you're going to talk R, it's a DSL, you have to learn some statistics, but it's fun. Yeah. And you read in my bio, I'm a big fan of open data, which is the concept of, at least in the United States, of local, state, federal governments exposing their data sets and allowing community people and maybe for-profit people like Yelp taking the restaurant um, information. I've done some really interesting work with some really interesting groups of people that I never would have been exposed to. Right. You talk about open source, well, there's open data. You download the data set and go to it. And you can work on, I'm working on, I'm about to work on a uh, data set from NOAA about maritime garbage mm -hmm. debris. How, wow. and, you know, so my kids say, what are you working on? Well, I'm working on a first parable problem to make <laughs> a lot of money. They don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to, you know, say, help out the oceans a little bit. You know, suddenly they're interested. Right. And, and so it helps me feel good about what I'm doing. And it gives me that sort of data set that perhaps I'm not exposed to at work or, or whatever to learn a new language. And the R community is so big and so expansive. Mm. You just need to put your first foot in. And so if I was a .NET developer and I'm like, okay, um, 
I'm, I'm going to pivot to the data a little bit. I want to learn about these things. And R seems like a great first choice, which I would agree to. How would I do it? I'd say, well, go to Coursera. Coursera, they have a, a data science in, intro class. Mm -hmm. And the, the funny thing is, if you, as a, a software developer, their first day, the first thing you learn is how to use source control. Because <laughs> wow, ask great. Evelina about That's academia awesome. and source control. <laughs> They're like, what? We have, to do what? we have to do what? You want to do what? But you have to be very careful laughing because they're laughing about you. But you don't know sure. what a regression is? Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, works you know, both ways. But yeah, yeah you're, you, it's interesting. You will come in with some skills. You do have some skills, right. particularly your mm. ability to aggregate and pull data out. You're, you already do this by the back of hand. You have to be more deliberate about it, but that's, you know how to do that. Right. Um, so you learn so, statistics, you learn F-sharp, then you learn R, you call uh, the R stuff from your F-sharp with a... Uh, one scenario, sure. One scenario, and then you've, and if you want to use that and you're published to a website or something well, like that, you can pull it up in PHP. So um, I wrote a book recently, um, and, and it was really geared towards ASP.NET developers mm -hmm. who are interested in taking their websites from simply wireframing a database and collecting information to something that's a little bit more predictive. Mm -hmm. And companies are already doing it, and they have this entire infrastructure behind the scenes, and you, you shell it to a service, maybe ours running in the background or Python. Right, right, right. But why can't we do this in .NET? In fact, you why can. Not? Yeah. You could learn how to use, a, there, there's some great libraries like a core.NET that you could use immediately in your application. Okay. And it's, the performance hit's not that bad, and if you use it correctly, you get some of that power without having to learn a new language. Um, so, uh, and I, I tried to show that in the book. Here's a website. We're Northwinds. No, it wasn't Northwinds. Adventure Work. One, right, one yeah, of our yeah, typical, right? right? Sure. And I said, okay, forget how many bikes we sold last week. Let's predict next month how, we can s how many bikes we're going to sell. And let's try to manipulate the UI to mm. drive like you were doing with, you were doing page hits. Sure. Um, and trying to make it faster. Well, what about the color scheme? What about the presentation? All this stuff, you Google Analytics and all these people are doing collecting uh, on your behalf. Why not make it your own and put it into your own site? Sure. So I think as a .NET developer, it's such, you have such a powerful platform that, and if you think of yourself as that full stack in that cylinder, you might be missing some of the great things that are available in your IDE. Sure. Right. And, and, and talk and, about adding value to the business. Oh, Holy my gosh. You think? Holy crap. Who's recession proof? The guy who can predict or the guy who just wireframes? Right. Um, I guess that's not really an industry now, but we've all lived through enough of those downturns sure. that you know the next one's going to eventually well, being, come. Being able to show new value, especially from existing data. Oh my gosh, yeah. So yeah. many developers I've met, it's like, my job is to get the data into the database. After that, somebody else can deal with it. Right. Like, well, I'm, and I'm they might be the, the UI guy, yeah, I guess. Or the, or the transaction processing, right? It's just about yeah. take the order. Once we've got the order, whatever, right? They, actually doing reporting and so forth, it's its own skill set. And it, it, it comes back to answering questions the business is actually asking, like what will sales be next quarter? You know, what can we predict? So, so yeah, so you, you can learn R immediately. I mean, there's many paths to the mm -hmm. end. If it was up to me and people asked me how did they, they get into it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, taking a Coursera class, you're gonna learn, the first thing you're gonna do is source control. The next two languages they're gonna teach you in no particular order is Python and R. Right. So embrace for what it is, learn about it. And then you can say, you can go back and say, well, wait a minute, there's this great, .NET library I could use, so I don't have to use R or Python, but at least I know about it now, mm -hmm, and I right. can have a conversation. And most importantly is then you can talk to really smart people like Evelina here, and you say, I have no idea what this model is doing, or here's my problem. Right. Can you help me? And she might be talking R back to you, or Python, or, or whatever. Well, you can understand it. And so, um, Well, and there is so that much. community there. So you yeah. have to learn enough to be able to speak in the community well enough to actually get help. 
Right. <laughs> and you have to be humble enough yeah. to ask for help. Yeah, because and you are <laughs> learning from scratch. The good news is there is a community that wants to help you. I would think there's an awful lot of R you don't need to write because <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's been done. <laughs> yeah. Come up with a good question and go look for the answer. It might and talk also, about there is hope because in the R community, there are many people who were doing computer science before and are right. coming in. So there are people like Hedley Wickham who are bringing quite a lot of like standard software development stuff into R. Right. Like testing, download loading stuff from GitHub directly into your R environment, things mm -hmm. like that. And these are things like, oh, why didn't R have a testing library? It has now because people are moving from software development into R and they are bringing all They're this. They're bringing that into. So yeah. these two communities are colliding anyway. Yes. They I are think coming so. together and getting stronger because of it. Source control testing coming into statistical modeling is really interesting. It can create a repeatable process. I really think there's a whole lot of .NET developers out there who would love to do this kind of stuff. And, mm. you know, it's, it's for me, it's like an untapped potential of so many brilliant, smart, great people who are, have intentions of working on curing cancer or cleaning up the ocean or whatever. And they have the tools, they just need the community around it. And I think we're seeing some of that, at mm. least in the F-Sharp group, the data science group. And so... You know, I'm very optimistic yeah. that using the Microsoft platform, you can accomplish a whole lot and you can expand your own skill set and have a whole lot of fun. Well, I love your call to action. It's like, you know, at the end yeah. of the day, you, you're hired by your company to provide value. And what more value to, uh, than to actually, you know, help the economic outcome of your absolute, you know, that's your job. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I would like people to know that playing with data is fun. Yeah. For example, here I'm giving a talk on analyzing Star Wars data. Yes. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's just about finding the right data set that you can play with, and that's interesting. What Star Wars data sets do you have? <laughs> well, I made them actually. Uh, okay. <laughs> because I looked at all the script screenplays mm -hmm. of all the movies and extracted using like a simple parser that I wrote in F Sharp, like which characters speak together within a single scene. Right. And wow. then that gives me a social network that I can analyze and play with. That's great. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I, I do stuff at work, but then also I, I helped out a local politician who was sort of under, I wouldn't say attack, but um, he was about to lose an election or mm. he, it was a little bit closer. Um, to, uh, well, I don't know if I can say this publicly, someone who you probably don't want in public office. Yeah, well, I know. Well, no, 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 this is at the local level. Oh, and, local it level. and this is a real, oh. I mean, we went in there and we looked at the data, didn't take much, and in, in these local campaigns, you know, they don't have a lot of funding, they can't no. afford it, and, they, and the software is not, and we just looked at the local public data and, and it gave them a little bit more focused on the marketing, and we changed the marketing because we realized some things about the unique characteristics of his district. Hmm, right. And the guy got reelected. And, and so you can have fun. You can impact the world around you. And mm. you're doing it all with .NET. I mean, cool. yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, guys, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic hour. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes,